Good morning and welcome to our gathering. Please keep your Bibles on John chapter 7 verses 14 through 24. We are currently looking at John's account of what Jesus did during the Feast of Booths. In verses 1 through 13, we saw Jesus reject his brother's invitation to come with them to the Feast of Booths because it wasn't the right time for him to go. Jesus followed a timeline that God the Father had set for him. All of his movements, the places that he went to, all that he did was done in unison with this timeline or with what I call the Father's timing. Hypothetically speaking, if Jesus had gone with his brothers when they invited him to go, he would have disobeyed the Father's timing. He would have jeopardized the Father's plan of salvation. And he would have disqualified himself as our Messiah. I think I speak for all of us, all believers in this room, but I am certainly thankful that Jesus came to obey all that the Father commanded and that He came to bring the Father glory in all things. In other words, He did not come to do whatever it was that He wanted to do. He came to do exactly what He was prescribed to do. And because of that, He fulfilled God's will perfectly and qualified Himself as our Savior. And He is our Savior because of this. So I am really thankful that Jesus did all that He was called to do and that He never jeopardized the Father's plan or even came close to disqualifying Himself. The Father actually had planned for Jesus to go to the feast, but not until after His brothers departed. He was to go privately or quietly rather than in a large attention-grabbing caravan. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, He kept a low profile for several days while His adversaries, the hate-filled Jews, the religious leaders, hunted for Him. In the next section, we see Jesus emerge from the shadows enter the temple courts and confront his adversaries head on. Let's pick it up in verse 14. It says, About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. Jesus waited until the halfway point to make his first appearance at the temple. This caught his adversaries off guard. They thought Jesus wasn't coming to the feast since it was half over. So they gave up their search and resumed their regular activities. When Jesus appeared, taking him down at that moment would have been completely unwise because he had many supporters in the crowd. There were a lot of people in the court where he was and he had a lot of supporters within that group. And if they had arrested him in this public setting, it probably would have been disastrous for them. His supporters would have no doubt protested, and that could have led to civil unrest and then maybe a riot. And the Romans didn't tolerate Jewish riots, so they would have intervened and shut down the feast. At the end of it all, it would have been bad PR for the religious leaders because they were the ones who arrested Jesus and caused all of this in the first place. The section of the temple Jesus entered was the outer court where pious Jews regularly assembled to hear experts in the Mosaic Law and other leaders discuss religion. What did Jesus teach? Well, the text doesn't say, so we really don't know. J.C. Ryle suggests that he taught lessons that are recorded in Luke chapters 17 through 21. We don't know for sure, but J.C. Ryle suggests it, so maybe that's a possibility if you want to look at those chapters in, in Luke. Look at how the people reacted to his teaching in verse 15. It says, The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? The Jews are the religious leaders who were actually wanting to kill Jesus, who had been hunting for him during the feast for several days. When they found Jesus in the outer court teaching the people, they, they marveled. I, I, didn't, I don't think that they were actually marveling at his sermon like they were impressed with what he taught. I don't think that that's what the text implies. I think they marveled at the fact that someone like Jesus, one who possessed no formal education, one who, has, as they said, never studied, could draw a crowd in the first place and gain supporters. They didn't marvel at Jesus' technique or wisdom or knowledge of Scripture, they marvel at the fact that a guy like him, an outcast, a virtual nobody, could actually draw a crowd and gain supporters or listeners. The Jews knew that Jesus had not come through their educational system, rabbinic school. Since they were unable to refute his superior teachings, 
They tried to undermine him by pointing out his inferior education. Now we that know Jesus know that he didn't have an inferior education, that he is the word incarnate. So that means he is the head of all education. Everything comes from him. So he has all the knowledge and all the scripture. He is the scripture in the flesh. So he didn't have an inferior education, but his enemies, his physical enemies at that time certainly believed that about him. And they tried to capitalize on that and disqualify him by pointing to the fact that he didn't go to their schools. Here's my paraphrase of verse 15. This is what the religious leaders were actually thinking and probably saying something like this. How can this man know anything about theology, let alone properly teach it, when he has not studied at our schools? Their primary point is pretty simple. It's that what they were thinking and what they were saying and trying to convey to people is that this man, referring to Jesus, this man, because that's exactly what they called him, this man isn't worth listening to. Now look at how Jesus responds to them in verses 16 through 17. It says, So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but His who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. Jesus basically said, My teaching is from the one who sent me. When you reject or question my teaching, you are essentially rejecting or questioning the one who gave it to me and the one who sent me. Now we must remember that God the Father is the architect of the plan of salvation. He designed the whole plan front to back. Jesus illustrates this truth beautifully in verses 1 through 36 of this chapter where he points to three things. The Father's timing or timeline. That's what we looked at last week, verses 1 through 13. And the Father's message. That's the text that we're in today, verses 14 through 24. And then also the third thing, and the Father's Messiah, verses 25 through 36. So it's God who who created this plan of salvation, who was the architect and designer And and he is essentially the one who came up with the timeline, the message, as well as he is the one who appointed and sent the Messiah, his son. It's incredible to think that God the Father authored the gospel and actually gave it to his son to proclaim. When we hear the gospel, we are not just hearing a preacher or even the words of Jesus. We are hearing the Father himself. When a person rejects the gospel... They are not rejecting the preacher. They are rejecting the true messenger, Jesus, and the true author, God the Father. Now the Jews thought rejecting Jesus had absolutely no impact on them. They thought it was their duty to reject Him. They thought it was their responsibility as the leaders of Israel to reject this alleged false Messiah. But in verse 16, Jesus told them that rejecting Him is rejecting the Father didn't he? My teaching is not mine. It's the Father's. So what I want you to hear and understand is that it is impossible for a person, any person, to know God, to be in relationship with God apart from Jesus Christ. It is impossible. It is impossible. Not in the Jewish mind, but the mind that set that they have is irrelevant. Not in the Islamic mindset because it's all about Allah, no Jesus in there, doesn't matter what they think, doesn't matter what they believe. The truth is that apart from Jesus, there is no relationship with God. Buddha's not going to get you there. Muhammad's not going to, nobody's going to get you to God but Jesus. Now, Jesus taught this universal truth in many different ways, didn't he? He did it here in our text when he talks about you reject my teaching, you reject the Father. There's one example of how he does it. If you flip forward to John 14, 6, you will see Jesus teach the same universal truth that you cannot get to the Father apart from me. You see Him do it there as plainly as possible. What did He say? I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You can't get any plainer than that. That leaves no room for confusion. Jesus made it lucidly clear that the way to God the Father is through God the Son and really through the work of the Holy Spirit because if He doesn't do His part, you're not getting anywhere. 
Jesus also challenged the religious leaders here. There is a challenge in the text. If they would humble themselves before God's word, they would come to know God's will because pride will keep us from knowing God's will. And if they obeyed God's will, even in the small things, they would come to a sure realization that Jesus' teaching was true. Pride helped to keep these men in the dark. Now, we'd all admit that Satan plays a role in that, the flesh. All that stuff keeps, keeps people from seeing and savoring and understanding Jesus and coming to Jesus. Unless the Spirit works that out, it's not going to happen. But pride is one of the biggest deflections of all, personal pride. It keeps people in the dark from un- rightly understanding God's Word, rightly understanding God's will, obeying it, and seeing and savoring Jesus rightly. It just keeps us in the dark. Now, pride doesn't just keep unbelievers in the dark. It can also stymie the spiritual development of believers. Totally. It'll mess us up. And we often blame our lack of understanding on God, don't we? We say things like, well, God has not yet opened my mind to that doctrine or particular view of it, and if and when He does, then I'll believe it. You ever heard anyone say that? Well, I, I just I can't get my mind around that or, or I, I don't understand that or you know, maybe some of those more challenging doctrines that seem to contradict what we've been taught in American Christianity, predestination, election, sovereign grace. We say things like, well, I don't know, maybe that's possible, but I don't believe that and I believe it's because God hasn't given me understanding on that or opened my mind to that. He hasn't taught it to me yet. Well, could it be that God has opened your mind to that doctrine, but because of pride you refuse to accept and believe it? I think that's 95% of the time. Some of it's just our own basic inability to comprehend, to think deeply, to not be distracted. But most of the time it's because we are blocking the truth and the revelation of God because we don't want to believe it because of pride. Pride can keep us from understanding the truth even when the truth is right before our eyes. And you would think, well, of course that happens with unbelievers. Friends, it happens with believers. Example, and I kind of pointed to this, American Christians have been indoctrinated literally into ancient heresies such as Pelagianism, semi-Pelagianism, Arminianism. These are uh, false doctrines and things that have been perpetuated since just about the beginning of the church. They talk about that God's salvation is just kind of hung out there and it's up to us to accept it or believe that God doesn't intervene. There's no, you know, it's not, a, it's not a work of the Holy Spirit. It's our work. It's our will, those kinds of things. When you think about that, you think, yeah, isn't that the, what the Bible teaches? No, th- those are heresies that have infiltrated the church. And Christians believe this stuff today. And so they believe that it's all up to us. It's just offered and it's all up to us. It's not up to God. It's up to us whether we get saved or not. You better use your will to believe or whatever this malarkey is. And guess what? When they actually hear the, what the Bible teaches about God's sovereignty and salvation, they immediately disagree and then cite passages like John 3.16. I'm like, did you read the context of John 3.16? You know, verses 1 through 15 and pretty much everything after it. Do you know who Jesus was speaking to? Yeah, man, he was speaking to a guy named Nicorette. Bro, Nicorette's nicotine gum. You mean Nicodemus, right? Yeah, that's what I meant. They don't even know who he was talking to. Yeah, Nicodemus was a guy that he was talking to, right? And guess what? Nicodemus was a Pharisee who believed that that he could use his free will to accept or reject the gospel, kind of like you. But in verses 1 through 15, Jesus corrected his theology by saying regeneration is a work of the Holy Spirit, not of the flesh. He annihilated his theology. So guess what, bro? John 3, 16 doesn't mean what you think it means. It doesn't mean what you think it means. It doesn't mean that Christ died for every single person and it's up to us to get ourselves saved by believing in Him. It doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that at all. What it means is that because our total and absolute inability is there, but God is gracious and He sent His Son to die for us and He calls some people to His Son. That's what it means. People from every tribe and tongue, that's what the word world means there in that context. But you see, soon as people that have been indoctrinated and stuff, as soon as they, you, you talk, you're saying that God chose us and He, tripped, oh, he couldn't do that because that's not fair because he, He's leaving people out of it. 
well, God created all of it. He can do with it what, what, what he wants. I may not like the, the way that tastes, but I ain't God. I, I got no right to question anything that he does. The Apostle Paul said that in, I think, chapter 8 or 9 of Romans. Who are you to question God, oh, man? It's not up to me. It's up to God what he does. Now, John 3, 16 doesn't mean what you think it means. So go back and look at the context and study it. Regeneration isn't the only thing the Holy Spirit does. You know what else he does? He also guides believers into all truth. John 16, 13. He is the instructor. He is the teacher. He guides God's people, the people of Jesus, into all truth. In other words, he never, never, ever dangles truth in front of us like a carrot on a string we cannot reach. So the idea of God not revealing that to you, although he's hanging it out in front of you, but he doesn't give you the ability to possess the truth, that's ridiculous. The Holy Spirit didn't come to dangle truth in front of us. He came to lead us into all truth. Bottom line, if we fail to understand truth, any truth, it's because of us, not because of God. It's our fault. It could be pride, right? could be pride that's blocking. It's not a matter of I can't understand. It's a matter of I don't want to accept that truth because it doesn't jive with me. It doesn't line up with what I've been taught my whole life or with what I think it should be could be a combination of pride and disobedience. This seems to be the religious leader's trouble here. Because of pride, they disobeyed God's will and were unable to understand the truth about Jesus. But if they humbled themselves and obeyed God's will, the pathway for these men, the pathway to understanding Jesus would be open to them. Obviously, it requires the work of the Holy Spirit as well. Bottom line, Jesus tells them, pride's keeping you from me. J.C. Ryle wrote, humility before God's word and honest obedience to God's will is one way to obtain clear spiritual knowledge. I believe that truth. I believe that. My question is, what is keeping us from understanding truth today? Maybe it's just one particular truth. Is it pride? Kill it. Pride belongs to the flesh and the things of the flesh should be put to death. Kill pride. Is it disobedience? Begin to obey the truths you do understand, and God will begin to teach you new truth. Oh, my old boss, Rick Countryman, had a great saying. He was a, more of a topical kind of preacher and would have a subject and then, and then kind of you know, lay some verses out and talk about it. It wasn't my particular way of teaching. I like to work the verses and have the subjects come out of that, but that's okay. He's a great man of God. I love the man. And, and there used to be an outcry from people at his church, and probably still is today, and people would say, we want you to teach us deeper truths. We want you to, to you know, we've heard these things over and over, and, and we, want, we want more meat. We don't want just this surfacey kind of evangelistic stuff or whatever. People would say that to him, and his response to them was great. He said, well, you know what, I'll start doing that when you start obeying the simple things I've been teaching you. Now, it's really not up to him to teach deeper truths. It's the work of the Spirit. But I'll tell you what, if pride's there, it's going to get in the way of you understanding things. It's going to block you. I'll add another one. It's not, it, it might be pride. It might be disobedience. But you know what? I think this is probably, maybe pride 90% is too high. Let's, let's jack it down to 75% and let's put about 20% in there of laziness. Laziness keeps us from understanding, from comprehending the truth. Don't be lazy. Lazy people are gullible people. They'll believe just about anything. Because of this, what happens? They believe just about anything. Anything a preacher will tell them, they believe it. Just, I, just, he, I trust Fred over there and I like his teaching, so whatever he's telling me I know is absolute truth because somehow he read a verse and it's all good. They never test anything. They just keep swallowing it, chewing it up and eating it. They're lazy. They don't put in any work. And you know what happens? Because they're actually not understanding the truth, because they're lazy, they're not checking it, they're being taught falsely or whatever, but here's the bottom line, it results in disobedience. They end up disobeying the will of God because they're being taught falsely. False teaching leads to disobedience. And all of it results in stagnation. Be a Berean, one who diligently compares what he or she is taught with with Scripture, Acts 17, 11, the Bereans were, 
more noble than their Jewish brothers. And, and when they heard the Apostle Paul proclaim the gospel, they were like, that sounds really good, but we're going to go check it for ourselves to make sure. And they went and looked at the word themselves and came back and said, dude, you're, you're, on, you're on it, bro. Don't just swallow up everything I, I teach you. Oh, it's flattering, but it's dangerous. I can make mistakes. You check the word. You become a Berean. You do the research too. You make sure that what I'm teaching is coming directly from the word and that it aligns with, with a couple of thousand years of Christian orthodoxy and sound doctrine. Be that kind of person. Don't be lazy. And I'll tell you what, if you become a Berean and you check stuff, just check it once in a while. It'll help to guard you against false teaching, which leads to disobedience and stagnation, right? Verse 18. Jesus continues, The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Jesus tells the religious leaders how to distinguish a false teacher from a true teacher. The false teacher is one who speaks on his own authority and who seeks his own glory. I can think of half a dozen pastors in this church that are all about their own glory. Pictures of them all over the church. It's shameful. False teacher is one who speaks on his own authority. Like you could tell he's not speaking on God's behalf, that he hasn't been sent because he just talks about fleshly, worldly things. You know, like, like all this favor and all these things that are favorable to man instead of the glory of God and the holiness of God and these sorts of things. They're everywhere. These guys are everywhere. But that's how you can tell that they speak on their own authority. And guess what? Ultimately, they end up pointing to themselves. Every story they tell and every illustration they give is about themselves. Well, I'll tell you, when I was over in Capitola one time, well, I'll tell you, when I was back in Kentucky, I'll tell you, when I was, all they ever do is point to them. When I was a college football star, I've heard that one in town. Glory, 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 glory. I'll tell you what, back in that day, in Jesus' day, Israel had many, many, many men rise to power. Many men. They would preach nationalism, Right? They would gather great crowds and, and great supporters, and then, and then many of them would attempt to lead rebellions against the nation's adversaries, like against Rome. The one thing that characterized them all was self-glory. Every one of them boasted about their own greatness, or they boasted about the greatness of their cause. The religious leaders, quite frankly, just assumed that Jesus was just another false teacher like those who had come before him. But Jesus corrected their thinking here. He told them that, that his teaching belonged to the one who sent him and that he had not come to seek his own glory, but the glory of the one who sent him. According to Jesus, the person who seeks his own glory is false, but the person who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true. There's the litmus test. And Jesus quite literally set himself apart from all other teachers, everyone who had rose up and for all time, he set himself apart from everyone else, including the religious leaders who were standing in front of him by simply denying himself and seeking to glorify the one who sent him. That is one of the marks of Jesus that we rarely ponder. He came entirely for the Father's glory and will. Ain't nobody else ever done that. That makes him special and unique. You're darn right it does. Now, the religious leaders were known glory hogs. Oh, they just <laughs> rooting in it. <laughs> glory. Oh, they just hogged it up, <laughs> splashing around in it. Glory, glory, glory. Let me give you some examples of what they did. They literally, when they went to make their offerings at the temple. Now, at the temple, they had these things that, they, that looked like a trumpet. You had the offering box. And you had this bronze kind of funnel-shaped trumpet thing, like when you change your oil on your car. Remember them long funnels? They had one, but it was metal. And people would take their offerings, and they would put it in the big mouth of that, kind of like a trombone, and it would slide down in that. You know what the religious leaders did? They would come up and take their coins and throw them into that to make a bunch of noise so everyone would go, oh, wow, look, the religious leaders are making their offerings. And listen, mine's never made that sound and went, with all those coins down there. These guys are really special. They literally deliberately slung their money into it to get attention so people would know they're giving. Glory, 
hog. That's not the only thing they did. And you can read about that in Matthew 6, 2. Jesus says, don't make your offering by trumpets. That's what he's referring to. They prayed on the street corners to get attention and praise for their piety. Jesus said, you know what, you guys? He told, taught his apostles, you don't do that. You pray in privacy. Don't pray out there like the hypocrites on the corners trying to get attention. Matthew 6, 5. These religious leaders were glory hogs. They modified the things they wore. They made their tassels and the little things they wore, the little things. They made them longer than other people or whatever. They just made them longer so they would swing a certain way and all that and get, you know, flashy, kind of like a lure when you're trying to catch fish. They put things on them that would get attention. They're phylacteries, these big boxes. It's weird to wear a box on your head, not a cheese head. Go Green Bay, not really, but right? But they would wear like a thing. It almost was like a Kleenex box on the front where it had a slot, and they would put like little Torah and the scrolls and stuff in there. They would wear these things. on It's called a flat tree. And, and some of them wear really big ones, like you have a big pylon on your head. Like there's no missing that guy at the party. Well, his flat tree's bigger than mine, so obviously he's really got it together. I don't think I intended that to sound the way that it just sounded. That's not good. But they would literally increase the size... At length of the tassels, increase the size of the phylactery. They would modify their priestly uniforms to make themselves look more holy. Matthew 23, 5. You know what they did when they went into the synagogues? They took the best seats every time. The seats that, that had the highest level of visibility in the room, where everyone could see them. They sat in those best seats every time. Matthew 23, 6. If they were in the marketplace or anywhere else and someone would come up and say, hey, how you doing? They would say, don't address me that way. Call me rabbi, meaning high teacher. They wanted to be called rabbi and acknowledged as rabbi in the marketplaces, 23-7 of Matthew. They received glory from one another and did not seek to glorify the God whom they claim to serve and worship. You can read about that back in John chapter 5, 44. Glory hogs all the way through. J.C. Ryle, again, and this jacked me up, a self-exalting spirit in pastors is entirely opposed to the mind of Christ. Entirely opposed. And he says this, the pastor... Here, here you go. Here's your test. Test me. Test me always. The pastor truly called of God will be deeply sensible of his master's majesty and his own infirmity and will seek in himself nothing but unworthiness. That should be. He's, he, he, he hit the nail on the head. I'll tell you what. You're familiar with the apostle Paul. He set the example for men in my position for pastors. The keynote that runs through all of his epistles is personal humility and zeal for Christ's glory. Listen to some of the things that he wrote. I am less than the least of all the saints. I am the lowest Christian of all. Ephesians 3.8. He said, I am not fit to be called an apostle. 1 Corinthians 15.9. He said, I am the chief of sinners, 1 Tim 1.15. He said, we preach not ourselves. In other words, I don't preach myself. I preach Christ Jesus the Lord, 2 Corinthians 4.5. You, you talk about a contrast between the religious leaders of that day, the pastors of that day, and the Apostle Paul, the true pastor of God, the humility and pursuing God. Which of those two groups, or which, just distinguish the difference here, between Paul and the religious leaders, which one sounds and looks more like Jesus? The Apostle Paul. He set an example, not just for pastors, but for all Christians. I'll talk about that in a little, little later on. And I would say this, pastors who follow the example of the religious leaders are basically cursed. They're anathema, right? That's demonic, man. But pastors who follow the example of Paul are blessed. They're blessed. They're happy in the Lord. And that's another thing. The prideful ones, they're not happy in the Lord. 
They're trying to conjure happiness somehow through self-exaltation. In the next six verses, Jesus exposes the religious leaders' hypocrisy and warns them against making hasty judgments. Look at 19 through 24. Jesus said this, Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Wow. Why do you seek to kill me? There's how they're not keeping the law. The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, parenthetical statement, not that it comes from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. What a correction. The religious leaders were ready to condemn Jesus as a sinner against the law of Moses because he had done a miracle on the Sabbath, John chapter 5, the entire chapter. The religious leaders forgot in their blind hatred that the fourth commandment was not meant to prevent works of mercy on the Sabbath. The work Jesus performed, the healing of the crippled man at the pool of Bethesda, was not in any way forbidden by the law of Moses. It was lawful for Jesus to heal that man. The religious leaders not only got this wrong, but they also violated one of the most important commandments when they sought to kill Jesus. Commandment 6, thou shall not kill. Thou shall not murder. (laughs) Hypocrites. (laughs) When Jesus revealed their hypocrisy, this is crazy. When Jesus exposed their hypocrisy right here, the fact that they were the ones who actually violated Mosaic law, they called him demon-possessed. Yeah, people don't like to be called out on their sin, do they? Well, you know, you should really watch it and stop doing that. You got a demon! I think you're the one with the demon, bro. Oh, they called him demon-possessed. That's blasphemy. This is Jesus. Now, they'd said it to him another time. They thought he was from Beelzebub, chief of demons. The religious leaders, again, too, there's more hypocrisy here. The religious leaders also made an exception to the rule but they were unwilling to apply it to Jesus. Male babies were to be circumcised eight days after they were born. If the eighth day landed on the Sabbath, they would go ahead. They'd make an exception. You're not supposed to do any work on the Sabbath, right? Uh Uh-huh. But, you know, if the baby was born, a male baby was born, and and that eighth day was on the Sabbath, we're going to have to go ahead and make an exception there and go ahead and circumcise that baby. That's what they did. In doing this, they were admitting that some works on the Sabbath are necessary and justifiable. Amen? But when Jesus performed a healing work on the Sabbath, which was much more necessary and justifiable, they blew a gasket. This shows that the religious leaders were prone, totally capable, and always doing it, of making hasty judgments based on appearances. They saw a single act. They saw Jesus do one thing on the Sabbath, which was totally permissible, but they didn't believe that. They see Him do one single act. They rush to judgment, and then they assume Jesus was a Sabbath-breaking sinner while remaining completely unaware of their own violations of the law and hypocrisy. You see how dangerous pride is? Pride changes the focus. It gives you the ability to see everyone else's sin, but not your own. And Jesus was no sinner. It was as if Jesus had said to them, Is it just and fair to be angry with me because I have done a far greater work to a man on the Sabbath than the work of circumcision? I have not wounded his body by circumcision, but made him perfectly whole. I have not done a purifying work, because that's what circumcision represented. I have not done a purifying work to one particular part of him, but have restored his whole body to health and strength. At the end of verse 24, Jesus told the religious leaders not to judge by appearances, but with right judgment. Right judgment is judgment that is based on Scripture and actual facts. It requires analysis. 
These guys didn't know Scripture, nor did they have actual facts about Jesus. They didn't really know his life or ministry or see any kind of pattern there. They saw one thing and then judged him. You know, it was in their, they see him do one thing and in their ignorance, they assume he was in error and then immediately rush to judgment. That's what they did. For believers, right judgment is not about declaring if people are believers or unbelievers or about consigning people to heaven or hell. Oh, that dude's going to hell. You ever said that? Or about declaring if people are good or bad because all people are bad. Okay, so, so I, I want you to pay attention. I'm going to reread that. I, I'm, I'm defining what right judgment is for the people of God, for Christians, for believers, for true disciples. It is not about declaring if people are believers or unbelievers. It's not about consigning people to heaven or hell. And it's not about declaring if people are good or bad. Here is what right judgment means for the people of God. It is about assessment and figuring out how to minister to people effectively. It is about knowing Scripture and studying Scripture and studying a person's life, not so you can render a judgment, but so that you can figure out how to properly care for that person. And this happens all the time. If you meet a person who professes to be Christian, but they use profanity or they do something else that raises a red flag, right? You're like, oh, yeah, I love Jesus, blah, 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 blah. You're like, whoa, no, you don't, because <laughs> I never cuss. Yeah, you do. You stubbed your toe last night. I sensed it. You said a lot of stuff. You got mad at your dog. Now, if you meet a, if you meet a person who professes to be Christian... But maybe they, I'm just giving you examples, maybe they use some profanity or something. I'm not saying it's right, I'm not saying it's good, I'm just saying they use some profanity. They do something else that causes, you know, a flag to go up. Here's, here's the warning, do not automatically assume they are a false convert or unbeliever. Don't do that. And that's what you do. Yeah, he said he loves Jesus, but I heard him say some things and I don't think he does. You're going to take the time to find out and to help minister to him? No, I just would rather call him what he is and then walk away. Oh, okay, yeah, that's the Christian way. All right, praise God. Go be with the religious leaders in the temple. <laughs> I'm pointing myself. That's what I do. Pointing, I'm pointing at all of us. The thumb is at you, the finger is at me. No, that's not right judgment. Get to know the person if you have the opportunity to. Earn the right to speak truth into their life. If they profess Christ and some of those patterns are there, that, 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 that happens. But you know what? You, you, it's, it's your job to make disciples in all nations, right there where you're at. So what, what does that mean? Do you get to know them? you analyze them to see if there's other patterns there or if that's a habitual pattern? Whatever it is, but ultimately you help them understand. If they profess Christ, you help them understand their high calling as a disciple of Jesus Christ. Help them understand that. That's discipleship. After some time, if you really sense that they have not been converted, don't label them. Evangelize them. Whoa, what a thought. <laughs> don't be like Pilate and wash your hands. I'm done with him unless he doesn't want anything to do with you anymore. And J.C. Ryle makes the opposite point, which I think is brilliant. He says, we are often too ready to be deceived by an appearance of good. We are in danger of rating some men as very good Christians because of a little outward profession of religion and a decent Sunday formality because, in short, they talk the language of Canaan. I think that's the Christian lingo. I don't know. And wear the garb of pilgrims. I have no idea what that means, but maybe it just they, they look and sound like a Christian, I think is what he's saying. He says, we forget that all is not good that appears good, even as all is not gold that glitters. And he says this, and that... Daily practice, choice, tastes, habits, conduct, private character are the true evidence of what a man is. In other words, you've got to spend time with them to figure out. Don't be like the religious leaders and see Jesus do one thing. Rush to judgment, apply the label, condemn as a sinner. Well, we already know that people are sinners, but you know what I'm saying. Don't assume they're a believer or not a believer. They're going to heaven or hell or any of that. It's not up to you to determine where they go. All you're to do is proclaim the gospel always. And don't be duped by some out there. Because there are some out there that, I mean, we do, they do one or two things, and all of a sudden we label them as Christian brethren. We invite them into everything. Next thing you know, they turn the whole fellowship on its ear. Be careful. Be wise. 
Have you ever drawn a conclusion about a person based on minimal information and then applied the label? <laughs> you ever done that? I have. And guess what? Jesus just told us here in this text not to do that. That's not right judgment. As believers, we are to judge with right judgment. We are to gather information from Scripture and from a person's life and then figure out how to best minister to them. Does the person need discipleship? Does the person need more evangelism? Does the person need a combination of both? I'll tell you what the person needs because all people need it. The gospel. Just keep preaching the gospel to the saved and to the lost. And then pray for God to do His work because His word never returns void. Don't be quick to judge and put the label on somebody. Love them and care for them. I say, don't be quick to judge and label people. Be quick to share the truth in love. That is the heart of Christ. Closing. All right, buckle your seatbelt. Everything else was a teaser. Better get a drink. This is clear bourbon. It's not, it's water. <sighs> All right. There are several important truths here that we could focus on as we wrap up, right? Humility before God's Word and obedience to God's will is a way to obtain spiritual knowledge. That's a pretty important truth. We could talk about judging with right judgment. We just talked about that. We could talk about that some more. That's, that's pretty big. All, these are important truths. There's other things here we could talk about. I'd like to focus on pride and a self-exalting spirit. Pastors aren't the only ones in the church who need to watch out for pride and a self-exalting spirit. Uh, I'll be the first to admit we should be the first ones concerned with it, but we're not the only ones. Every believer needs to watch out for these things. Here are some of the warning signs that you are prideful and have a self-exalting spirit. Are we quick to downplay our sinful behavior? You know, you, you realize something's going on with you or somebody makes that evident to you and, and you, you are the best spin master ever. You ought to be a political pundit. You can spin that around and make them own your sin. That's how good you are at it. Actually, it's your fault. It is. I need to repent. You didn't do anything wrong. He, yeah, I did. I shouldn't have came to him. Are you quick to downplay your sinful behavior? That shows that you have pride. There's an unwillingness there to admit your mistakes. That's all pride. Are we quick to deflect and shift the blame when confronted? That's part of downplaying your sinful behavior. Do you spin it on someone else? How many times have you actually confronted somebody in love, and next thing you know, they're talking about all the things you did, like from 1974 to 1992, okay, it's like 20 years ago, we're not, have you ever had to say to somebody, yeah, but hold on a second, I, I, I get where you're coming from, but we're not talking about me right now, we're talking about you. You ever had to say that? That's imprinted on a pastor. Pastors have to say that regularly. We're, we're not talking about your, we're not talking about your friend, we're not talking about that teacher, we're not talking about your spouse, we're talking about you right now. So quit deflecting. If you're a deflector, you're prideful. Are we unwilling to accept responsibility for our sinful behavior? Now, it's not just about downplaying it and making it seem like we're not so bad or we didn't, what we did isn't so great. You know, it's not such a bad thing. There are worse things. Do I have to remind you of Charles Manson? Right? Okay, whatever. You're being stupid and you're prideful. Charles Manson wasn't even as prideful as you're being right now. The unwillingness to accept responsibility for our sinful behavior is rooted in pride. I have such a high view of myself, I am not going to acknowledge and own that behavior, even though I'm perpetuating it. Are we unwilling to apologize for the pain we inflict on others? That's pride. You believe so highly in yourself, you are unwilling to apologize. Somehow, like I said earlier, you spin it to where it's everyone else's fault but yours. That's just pride. Are we unwilling to repent and when I say repent, I'm not talking about confession. And I think we, we mess these things up. Confession and repentance are two completely different things. Confession has to do with acknowledging and speaking out your sin before God or to a, a faithful brother, somebody you trust. Repentance is completely different. Repentance is actually changing your behavioral pattern. 
If, if, if you are quick to confess and you don't actually repent, it's because of pride, because of self-value and self-exaltation that you're unwilling to actually change your behavior. And you know what? There are times where we need to not just confess what we've done, we need to change our behavior. Because you know what? If you're, if, you're, if you're married to somebody, you're dating somebody, or you're in relation with somebody, and, and, and you are the biggest confessor in the world, after a while, if you don't actually change your behavior, that person's not going to accept your confessions and your apologies anymore. They're just going to say, he doesn't really care because he believes so much or she believes so much in herself. Confessions will only get you so far. Apologies will only get you so far. We need to become people of repentance. And I get it. Sometimes we don't repent the first or second time we're called out on something. Or the third or the fourth or the fifth or the sixth. Or we leave it for a while, then we come back in December. But we need to be people of repentance. We need to be willing. Pride will keep you from being willing to change your behavioral pattern. Are we unwilling to accept apologies from those who have caused us pain? that we have so much pride and so much self-value that we're not willing to set that aside and to actually accept the apology that somebody's making to us because they jacked us up. It's pride. If you're not willing to be forgiven by those who hurt you, you believe too high and you've got a self-exalting spirit. You're not that important, and neither am I. Are we unwilling to let go of past grievances? Do we maintain a reproach Rolodex? You know, you remember the old Rolodexes? You, oh, there's Jim's number, and there's Fred, and there's Pastor Phil. <laughs> Spin past that one in there, right? You know, right? The Rolodex? Yeah, you have one in there where you write down, well, on 1984, Fred said this, and then you flip it over, and then, oh, in 1984 in September, right? You have this record, it's in the back of your mind, and then when somebody does something wrong, you unleash the Rolodex on them. They're like, you know what? I'm not even going to talk to you about this. Just read this. Oh, look, all my grievances. Wow, it's amazing because God doesn't hold these things against me, but you somehow do. Way to be Jesus. You keep a record of people's wrongs because you believe too high in yourself. You have a very exalted spirit. You have a very high view of yourself. Are we unwilling to accept instruction from others? Right? Spouse, authority figure. Nah, I don't really care what he says. I don't really care what she says. You think so highly of yourself that other people's input and instruction is, is not good enough for you? Are we overly opinionated, <laughs> insistent on sharing our views? You, you, you know what I'm talking about here? We're so opinionated... We are absolutely, we're opinionated to the point where we are absolutely insistent on sharing our views with others, even when it's unwarranted or unasked for. This is why I got off Facebook. I'd share a view, which is pride, and then people would attack it and I'd get all blown out. Facebook's not good for me. And people are insistent on sharing their views, right? That's Pride, you think so highly of yourself that your opinion really counts and needs to be verbalized with everyone. And not only that, it needs to be accepted as absolute truth. Okay, that's just pride. Are we stubborn? You know what stubborn is? Insistent on getting our way. Meathead. Heads filled with tri-tip. Cooked to perfection. I'm judging you. Yeah, you're judging me. I hope it's right judgment. I'm generalizing. I'm not looking at you. Now I am. <laughs> Think about that for a moment. Are we stubborn? Yes. Stubbornness is pride. Are you insistent on getting your way? When somebody suggests another way, no, 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 no. Are we critical or judgmental toward others? It's pride. Guilty. Are we boastful? Look at what I did. Look at my credentials. Look at what I can do. These are all examples of pride and a self-exalting spirit. And I'll tell you, the antidote for pride and a self-exalting spirit is the gospel. 
Why? Because the gospel tells us who we really are and what we really need. In other words, it puts us in our place. It tells us we are sinners and that we have no intrinsic holiness, no intrinsic righteousness, that we are in no way attractive to God. It tells us that, we are, that all of our deeds are but filthy rags. Isaiah talks about that. It tells us that we are entirely dependent upon the person and work of Jesus Christ for our salvation. That we are saved because of His holiness that we are saved because of His obedience, that we are saved because of His righteousness, that we are saved because of His atonement, that we are saved because of His resurrection. Even faith and repentance are gifts of God's grace. Ephesians 2.8, 2 Timothy 2.25. These truths are meant to knock us off our high horses to humiliate us in a good way, to make us poor in spirit, Matthew 5, 3, and to make us dependent upon Christ alone, not just at the moment of our conversion, but for as long as we have breath in our lungs. There is never a time in our walk with Christ where it is appropriate for us to be prideful or to cultivate a self-exalting spirit. It's totally out of line. In fact, the exact opposite should occur as we walk with Christ. We should be increasing not in pride and self-exalting spirit, but in humility and self-denial as we grow in the knowledge of God's holiness and in the knowledge of our own sinfulness and depravity. We should be increasing not in self-reliance, but in grace-reliance. Humility is a sign of maturation, that we are maturing as believers, while pride and a self-exalting spirit are signs of immaturity or unbelief. Since the Bible teaches high views of God and low views of man in salvation and in everything else, how can we be prideful? How can we have a self-exalting spirit? If we believe and we affirm what Scripture alone teaches about salvation, it is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, how can we be prideful? How can we maintain a self-exalting spirit? If pride and a self-exalting spirit are evident in our lives, we are living according to the flesh, not according to the spirit, not according or in accordance with the will of God. As I said earlier, we are to put to death whatever belongs to our flesh. Are we prideful? We better put our pride to death before it puts us to death. Do we have a self-exalting spirit? Confess that. Repent. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God. Amen.